I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Pray with me. Our Father, now as we seek to know your word more fully on the subject of elders, we pray that you'd give us wisdom, Lord, as to how this should be carried out. We're most concerned with what you say in regards to this. And we pray we'd be a church that honors you in this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as was said before, we're going to slow down a bit in these first five verses of chapter 5 to cover the important subject of church elders. Why is it so important that we do that? Well, few would doubt that leadership is an important concept but there is much confusion as to what that should actually look like. Many evangelical leaders are accustomed to John Maxwell's definition of leadership as influence. Leadership is influence in the church. But in his book, The Maxwell Fallacy, this author named David Burkus, who's also a leadership guru, says that's an overly simplistic definition because it leaves the door open to influence through coercion, manipulation, or threat. Is that biblical leadership? Absolutely not. So he proposes that leadership is the process of influencing others to work toward a mutually desired vision. That clarification is at least helpful in some sense. We're working together towards a mutually understood vision, but here's the problem. That mutually desired vision may itself be sinful and wrong. So, what does that mean? That means we need to figure out what God says leadership is from His Word. Honestly, I could care less about what popular notions of leadership are. I want to hear from God as to how his church, whom he loves, whom he cares for, is to be organized and structured. Now, not saying that all secular understandings of leadership are to be rejected and any sort of pragmatism is horribly wrong, but I'm just not concerned with impressing the world's eyes as to how a church should run or function in its most easy and suitable and clean fashion. I'm concerned about what God says. Now, the subject of elders is interesting to cover as one who is an elder himself. Shouldn't I be hesitant that there is a possibility that as we're looking at what the Bible describes as a pastor, elder, overseer, that there is a chance you might see some cracks in our leadership. That there's a chance you might say, wow, our guys aren't even measuring up. Should that keep me from covering this subject in its thoroughness and really trying to get into the, the weeds on this whole thing? Absolutely not. My job as a pastor is to preach the whole counsel of God. And last time I checked, either I or none of the elders have says that we have arrived. We actually have much work to do. We want to improve in this. And we know that God's means in doing that is studying it. And then also being held accountable from God's people. So we are slowing down in here to really look at where does this concept come from? What are the qualifications of it? How does this fit in with the overall church structure? That is what is most important to us. What does God care about elders in the church and the relationship involved? Not only is it uh, a motivation for us to study this just to be biblical, but there's also important factors that would cause us to make sure we have a very clear understanding of this. Let me just mention them. A biblical understanding of church elders is key to fulfilling the Great Commission. Why is that? If you look at the book of Acts, the people who are being sent out from the church are biblically qualified people. That means we must understand that if we are to make disciples of all nations and we're sending people out, who are those people we need to be sending out? 
It is key to our church's present and future health. Present as to who are the pastors that you are submitting yourselves to, and then who are the pastors that we are raising up so that our church doesn't fade away in existence because there's no leadership. It's key to instructing the next generation. Maybe you should ask your children if they know what an elder is. In fact, I did that last night, and they were clueless. So I've got work to do. Daddy, you're not an elder. Oh, well, I, let me just, let me help you understand this, okay? And this is also key to our pastor's encouragement and faithfulness. We have six pastors at Emmaus, and I want you all to be encouraged as we study this. That this is something you should be giving your lives to greatly and excitedly to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in his church. So with these introductory comments I just want to share the big idea for the next three weeks, which is this. The good shepherd, or the chief shepherd, you might say, entrusts the care of his sheep to qualified under-shepherds. Okay. And so I want to then, by looking at this, address first four introductory assumptions regarding elders. So this might be a little different in that I'm not going to get into the whole passage and really break it down verse by verse. Because what Peter does here is he assumes some things that if you have not read other parts of the Bible, of the New Testament, you might be saying, what is this? What is happening here? Who are these elders? Where does this come on the scene? How, how am I supposed to know this isn't just an old person? What's, what's happening here? So we're going to look at some introductory assumptions, four of them, and let's dive right in. First is elder origins. Who were these elders? Verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you. Who were they? How did the situation develop in which they would know who they were and who the people in their congregation were and how those people in the congregation would recognize these people as elders? Where did this whole concept even come about from? The word here for elders is presbyteros. That means sometimes simply older ones, as is the case and in its use in 1 Timothy 5.1, Timothy is to respect older men. And when he, even when he must exhort and admonish them, he must show deference to their age. Do not rebuke an older man. It's also used that way in Acts 2.17. The older men shall see strange dreams. But in this context and the primary usage we find in the New Testament, it is clear that the word itself is used in a more restrictive and technical sense to describe the spiritual leaders of the church. Appointed official spiritual leadership in the congregation of God's people. And that's why Peter can say in this passage that these elders are to shepherd the flock of God, which is among them. And they would then know precisely who those people were and how that was to take place. Now, the question is, how did such a situation come into being? Where did this happen that elders all of a sudden are leading the church? And uh, it's clear in the book of Acts that we have the first designation of elders in chapter 11. The church of one. 120 people at Pentecost are filled with the Spirit. Then 3,000 people are saved. They're added to their number. And there's this leadership taking place in those churches in Jerusalem, and that is the apostles. But then we come to Acts 11, if you'd like to turn there with me. Acts 11, verse 27 through 30. This is the first mention of elders in the New Testament in regards to the church. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is our first mention of elders in the New Testament. So the 12 apostles are serving as the official church leaders, but then there's this arrival of elders out of nowhere. No explanation. It just assumes that you would know what they're talking about. Isn't that interesting? 
Why is that the case? The best answer I can give, and this is one that is shared by many evangelical scholars, is that elders uh, derived from the Old Testament usage. So Old Testament, remember, with Moses, he appoints 70 elders to help him rule God's people to judge and make decisions. Then we see that as the church in exile in the later parts of the Old Testament is in exile, they gather in synagogues, and there is official leadership in synagogues, which were called elders. The Sanhedrin then had elders as well. Now, some will say that although the term itself is figured in Old Testament and synagogues and leadership, what they actually did should not be read into what the church does. So that the elder in the New Testament sense actually derives its definition and understanding of its function from the New Testament itself. It's a whole new thing. But the term itself, elders, and the idea of ruling the church, leading, was brought in from the Old Testament and synagogues. And so when Paul then starts his missionary journeys and he's planting churches in Gentile areas, he actually starts appointing elders as very important spiritual leaders within the church. Acts chapter 14, verse 20 through 23. We can read that together. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. This is Paul. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here in the midst of this infant church situation, the apostle and his companions go about uh, planting, establishing new churches, and then they install elders to oversee these churches. Not because they didn't believe that Christ was the chief shepherd, they did, but they, they thought that Christ had revealed to them that he had entrusted the care of his sheep to faithful elders. So very naturally, in Acts chapter 20, as we read earlier, Luke writes, as Paul is in the area of the church of Ephesus, where he had spent at least three and a half years training, establishing, and helping that church get off the ground. As he's in the area, in chapter 20, verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then what does he describe their ministry as? Spiritual leaders who are to shepherd the flock of God, to oversee the ones whom Christ died. And so, we see this sort of like beginning of the elders brought about from the Old Testament usage, synagogue usage, given more definition and clarity as the New Testament unfolds as to what they're supposed to be doing. And some people get confused at this because if you read in the book of Acts, it seems like earlier they're just ruling, they're just making decisions. But then more established New Testament time period, the apostles, specifically Peter and Paul, towards the end of their ministries, as they are about to be dying off, the apostles, what do they want to do? They want to establish and encourage strong spiritual leadership in the churches through these elders. So we get specific references to them being the teachers and spiritual leaders in the churches. In uh, Titus, Paul writes to Titus and says in chapter 1, verse 5, to put what remains in order and appoint elders in every city. And then also we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 some more qualifications of this. So now, we, we understand that God has established elders in the church who are going to be spiritually leading the church, but there are still some things we need to work through. Why do we see in the Bible this term overseer and pastor and elder? Does this mean that there are multiple offices within the church who have spiritual leadership in the church? And that is not the case. 
we have to recognize that the Bible uses these terms interchangeably. Let me just describe why this is the case. If you look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17, where we just were, he calls the elders to himself. But then in verse 28, what does he say? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Interesting how some people in certain ecclesiastical traditions will say overseer is actually a separate office from elder, and it's over them so that they rule over the elders and call the shots. That doesn't seem to be what's happening here. And that is also reinforced if we look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. This is towards the end of your Bible there. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer... Speaking of the same person as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Interesting how we have an elders addressed, then overseers. And then in our passage today, 1 Peter chapter 5, who is he exhorting? The elders in verse 1. But what does he call them to do in verse 2? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now where's the term pastor come from? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers to the church. Pastor, that is the, uh, brought over from the Latin phrase, to shepherd. It's a shepherd. And so these three offices are used interchangeably, and they are never given separate qualifications. So how do you become an overseer? How do you become an elder? How do you become a pastor? There's only one set of qualifications described here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus 1. And then all elders and overseers and pastors are given the same function. Elders teach, oversee, and shepherd. Overseers teach, oversee, and shepherd. Pastors teach, oversee, and shepherd. Okay, I hope, hope you're not too confused. But all I'm trying to say is that elder, overseer, and pastors are used interchangeably as was seen as early uh, since the time of the Reformation in the 17th century. You have the London Baptist Confession reading that the officers appointed by Christ are overseers or elders and deacons. So if these two terms, overseer, elder, maybe you could throw pastor in there as well, represent the same office, then why is it necessary that these different terms are used. And that, we could say, is probably because elder is more a description of character, whereas overseer is more a description of function. So elder has the idea of a wise, mature leader who is honored and respected by the community. Then you have the overseer speaks more to its duty to oversee and protect those under his care. Pastor, obviously the idea of shepherding. So then, if that's the case, we have six pastors here at this church. Why then, if they're called elders or overseers, elders in 1 Peter 5, why do we actually emphasize the term pastor? Have you thought about that? Why do we go above and beyond to say we have six pastors at Emmaus? Well, it's because there has been confusion in our current context, like the fact that my children didn't know that I was an elder, because pastor is usually seen as the person who does most of the preaching, maybe is on staff and paid. And those other guys who are elders, they just make decisions and kind of oversee the flock. And what we try and do at Emmaus is say, actually, we all have the same qualifications, we all share the same functions, And we want everybody to realize that those men of God who are giving their time are those who pray for you, they visit with our members, they teach, they lead, they do all the same things. So we all do the same things, it's just 
a matter of degree. So I do more of the teaching. Thomas does more of the teaching. Ron does more of the teaching. And so based upon 1 Timothy 5, elders who rule well are considered of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. So that's how that works. So we go above and beyond to say, we are all pastors. And so I teach my kids, Pastor Voles, Pastor Voles is your pastor. We want them to give the respect due to that office. All right, now, we realize that Peter makes an assumption by saying, I exhort the elders among you. Hopefully you understand now where that concept comes from, where that idea comes from, and why they would see that as an actual office. But the question then is, how does someone actually become an elder? Do we have any help or guidance there? Where did these people come from? Who are they? Are they men and women? Must they be old? Are they selected at random so everyone gets a chance? You know, we have a membership here, so everyone's going to serve over time. We just kind of rotate on and off. Does the Bible speak to how someone might become a pastor, elder, overseer? Well, to begin with, we recognize in our own text here, in verse 2, that the person is not to serve under compulsion. Compulsion. So if we're asking who are these people, well, there are some people who want to do that. We take very similarly in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where it says this, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So not under compulsion, also desires it. So first off, who are these people? They want to shepherd God's flock. Secondly, we can say that the office of elder, overseer, pastor is restricted to qualified men. That is not to say that women don't have important functions within the church, but it is to say that the office is restricted to qualified men based on 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says that he does not allow a woman to exercise authority or to teach a man. That is in the context of the gathered church, where a woman is going to expressly fulfill the office of elder, that would not be correct. They'd be limited not only by that, they'd be prohibited by that, but then also the fact that in the qualifications of an elder listed in 1 Timothy 3, it says that the, the overseer must be husband of one wife. That is, a one-woman man, and then all the pronouns surrounding that are masculine pronouns, and then we have the example of the apostles, and then all the elders that are represented in the New Testament teaching that are all men. So, that is limited to qualified men. So, they must have a desire, they must be qualified men. Is there another way, more things we need to consider, if, say, somebody is, all right, I am... I want to be a shepherd. I'm a man. Can I just become it? Well, no, the Bible speaks to more of that. And I like to put it in this term. There are five C's. Five C's. Hopefully that sticks in your mind. If you're thinking about how do we recognize an elder? Who should be an elder? Who maybe is an elder right now who shouldn't be an elder? Let's think of these five C's together. They must possess character, conviction, care, competency, and credibility. I'll try and move through these fairly briefly. First, character. Church leadership is not an issue of mere competency or giftedness. This is where we usually first go. Can the guy speak? Is he dynamic? Can he keep people's attention? Does he know things about the Bible? Let's get him in there. That's not where the Bible begins. First and foremost, it is an issue of character. The world looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. While we can't see someone's heart, there is a process that takes place where the person's heart hopefully will be revealed over time. So let's just read through 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we see Paul writing to Timothy certain qualifications that one should think through. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, 
The husband of one's wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will they care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Keep that passage in your mind. It's very important that you know where to go to be thinking about who should be a pastor. I also want to share with you 1 Timothy chapter 1. I think it's worth it for us to read it as well. Sorry, Titus chapter 1. Verse 5. All right. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunken or drunkard or a violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. If I wanted to summarize these two passages together, it's really looking at the character of a person who's aspiring for the office. You could really sum it up on, in, in this one idea of above reproach. That is, no one can point the finger and say, wow, this is off here, clearly. Everybody recognizes it. He's above reproach. He can't be pointed at. And so three areas in which he's above reproach, if you brought those two together, above reproach in his personal life, above reproach in his family life, and he's above reproach in his public life. Private life, family life, and public life. We are to be looking for men and to be holding accountable our curtain pastors according to this concept, being above reproach in those three areas. Now, if you're a young person and you, or, a, a, you know, it happens a lot where young guys want to aspire for the ministry or for being an elder, it's very clear that men tend to gravitate towards studying doctrine or wanting to teach. But this is where you must begin the hard work of getting your life in order to the glory of God. Next C is conviction. So we talked about character, now conviction. Conviction, that is conviction about the truth. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trusty word as taught. The trustworthy word is taught. He has a backbone when it comes to the truth. He knows that God has revealed his himself and how his church should be ordered and how the life of a Christian should be brought and lived out. He has conviction about truth, but also conviction about doctrine. Conviction about doctrine, that is a clear understanding of what the Bible on the whole teaches about a certain subject. And why is that? Twofold purpose. One, it says in verse Titus verse 1 verse 9, it says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be Able to give instruction in sound doctrine, that healthy doctrine that builds up the church. But also, negatively, that he might rebuke those who contradict it. That means he must have a conviction of what the Bible teaches and be willing to say, no, 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 this is the truth. And all those who contradict it, they must be rebuked, of course, with gentleness and patience as well. Tied into that is also having a firm grasp as to what are the essential doctrines of the church. Those things like the person and work of Christ, the, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Uh, those central doctrines that if you deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you lose Christianity. Then what are those characteristic doctrines of fellowships? Those things like baptism, view of the Lord's Supper, and these 
things that tend to cause us to separate amongst different churches but still have fellowship around the gospel. And then also must have a grasp of what then are those things we should be charitable about that we can disagree upon even in the same church. Things like the end times, the style of music, those kind of things. So conviction, though, about doctrine, what is that? And how should it be carried out? But also conviction about ethics. Is abortion wrong? Is euthanasia wrong? How many genders are there? Is racism wrong? What is marriage? And who has the authority to define it or redefine it? Is no-fault divorce permissible? Having biblical answers to these is not only important for what you're going to be teaching, but then also that you might serve as an adequate example to the flock. So, he must have character, he must have conviction. Third, he must have care. Care. Love. I hope you saw that the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, as an apostle, had great desire and burden and affection for the church. And what it's described about in 1 Peter, the church, chapter 5, it says, shepherd the flock of God. This is God's flock. He loves his sheep. And guess what? You better care about the sheep as well. And so the person who might become an elder is one who knows the weighty responsibility that they are being entrusted with God's sheep. And that they will then do all they can to love, care, and serve. A potential shepherd must know what the church needs. They need to be fed. They need to be led. They need to be protected. And so you should already see in that person's life, even apart from the office or being appointed, these characteristics found. They love the church. They have people in their home. They're discipling other people. They're sharing the gospel with others. They're they're standing true to the word of God. And thankfully, that's why we have put forward William Schleifer as a potential pastor in our church. I hope you all see this. That we don't just garner up the person who's uh, either got the most status in the community or has the most influence or money or whatever like that. We are finding men in the church who are already doing the task of shepherding. Do they care for the church? Absolutely. Do they serve, not under compulsion, but willingly? It even says in the passage, eagerly. And in there, in verse 2, it also says, not for shameful gain. What kind of gain might you have from becoming a pastor? Well, it could be monetarily, but also power, authority, hunger for being looked upon as somebody. And it says, not domineering over those in your charge. You care for the sheep. You love the sheep. You want to use your authority to lead them towards God and towards the food of his word. The controlling image for leading the church is that of a shepherd, not as a cowboy of cattle or something like this, where they're in the back of cattle. I don't know if you farmers know, and they're always yelling at them and getting them going, trying to push them all forward. But the shepherd is one who what? Leads in front, guides them as an example and uses his voice so that they know him and follows. That's the imagery of the pastor, the shepherd. He cares for the church. And then fourth is competency. Competency. I purposely left this one towards the back. They must be able to teach, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That is the one qualification that distinguishes them from deacons. Deacons in the church serve, but it doesn't say they must be able to teach. Then it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, no, 2 Timothy 2, 2, that Timothy is to be entrusting teaching to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. They must be able to teach. That doesn't mean they're able to preach a sermon. That doesn't mean they're the greatest communicator. That doesn't even mean they're the most skilled person to teach. What it means is as is often the case, too, if they're becoming an elder for the first time, they might not have as much experience, but they have to have what looks like potential for being a, becoming a good teacher. That is, they can, they can articulate sound doctrine, 
and they can communicate it in a way that's helpful in ultimately building up the church. They must be competent. And then finally, credibility is the final C there. Credibility. The key to establishing credibility is observation over a significant period of time. Do we have anything in the Bible that would lead us to believe that this is a, an important aspect of finding a, per, uh, a potential elder? And that is definitely described uh, in 1 Timothy 3.6. He must not be a new convert. As well as 1 Timothy 5.22, he says that, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands of an elder. And is, why is the reason? He says, as it goes on, some people's sins manifest themselves later. And their good works might manifest themselves later. So the implication is, look at these things over a period of time, because that is what establishes credibility, when they have character, when they have the competency needed, the care for the church required over a time period, you can say that these men should be given the office of elder, character, conviction, care, competency, and credibility. So, if you're like, wow, okay, great, I know that now, what's the point? Well, as we're going to say, see, when we get into the concept of church government at the end, you have a very important role in determining who should be a pastor, and how the pastors are currently serving. But there's also another reason why this character, conviction, care, competency, and credibility might be particularly relevant to you as just a Christian. Because this is what you're actually striving for in your own life. What has Peter been teaching us of how we are to live as exiles in a fallen world? Are we not to be those who are holy? That is, have character? Are we not to show our good deeds to those who are watching so that they might glorify God? Are we to have conviction? Absolutely. We give a defense for anyone who asks of the hope that's in us. Are we not to care for God's church? Yes. Love for one another. Competency. What are are we talking about there? Well, put it into your own work life. Competency at your work. Doing a good job in order that in everything Christ might be glorified, as we saw two weeks ago. And then if you do that over time, what is that basically? You're a credible person, credible testimony. A person who's been saved by Christ and showing that to the world and might give a hearing for the gospel. So those are things that we're all to be striving for. Character, conviction, care, competency, and ultimately credibility. So those are the first two introductory assumptions. One is the origins of elders. Where did it come from? Second, how do you become an elder? That's the qualifications. Third, that is church membership. The third introductory matter or assumption we look at is church membership. There are certain concepts in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 5 that would lead one to say or teach or articulate the concept of formal church membership. And you're like, what? Where is that? Do you recognize any terms in 1 Peter 5 that might lead you towards that? Well, he says, I exhort the elders among you. That means this is a group of people who Peter is exhorting, and they have elders among them. Then he says, shepherd the flock to the elders that is among you. Shepherd the flock that is among you. That means the shepherds have a certain group of people that is among them, who they are to shepherd. And then he says there in verse 3, do this not domineering over those in your charge. So this is a group of identifiable pastors who have a group of people in their midst who have been entrusted to them, which has led people to say, well, it seems like there is more recognition, more defined community here than, say, just a loosely affiliated group of people who go from church to church, kind of bouncing around, 
and maybe visit this church one week, that church one week, grab their iPhone, look at a service on that week. No, let's look at this a little bit more closely. Um, in in uh, First, the elders knew who the people were who were in their charge. It's very difficult to shepherd someone who you don't know you're actually accountable or responsible to. And you might say, well, no, that just means that people are visiting the church. I have not been entrusted with somebody who just visits here one week because they're in town, you know, for the weekend. That's not what this is describing. I have not been entrusted to the care of someone's soul and will give an account for somebody who is not a Christian but is just visiting here with a friend. I instead keep watch over souls as those will give an account of a certain group of people who has been entrusted to my care. That leads someone to believe, well, maybe there's a little bit more communication that has taken place, more, something more formal that has gone on. And then it is clear that church members recognize who their elders are because in verse 5, they submit to them. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Okay, so certain people, in order to be subject to them, does that mean they subject to all elders? Is there one group of elders over the entire church all over the world that they must subject themselves to? No, it's the ones who are over you, whom you've been entrusted to. So this has led people to, to look at the rest of the Bible and say, what is this relationship that Christians have with one another and to their pastors? Is there more scriptures to, to define this? And what we have in Acts chapter 2 is just a beautiful uh, early description of what church membership looks like. And I know many people hear the term church membership and you're like, that's an American westernized concept. All I mean by that is a, a defined group of people who've committed themselves to one another and to the pastors, whom those pastors will then give an account for. So, let's think about Acts chapter 2. What happens there? There's 120 people in a room. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. That 120 is a distinct number. It's being kept. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to proclaim the Word of God, mainly through Peter, and 3,000 people are converted. What took place before that? This is called the preparation for church membership, you might say. Peter proclaims the gospel and says, Look, all of y'all were involved in crucifying the Messiah. Because remember, Jesus had just died and been raised 50 days prior to this. He says, You all were involved in this. You rejected the Messiah. And they say, Well, what should we do? And what does he say? Repent and be baptized. So they hear the message of the gospel, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and then they say, all right, I'm in for that. And it says 3,000 people were what? Added to their number, Acts 2.41. Added to their number. There was 120. Now there's at least 3,120. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, read our current membership process into that. And you're saying, okay, so they had 3,000 membership interviews. They filled out 3,000 packets of paper, you know, to make sure they have all the data. And then the congregation voted on them specifically. And you're like, no, that didn't happen. Why? Because we have certain processes of our membership that might fit more for our current context. Let me just import you back to first century. Remember, Jesus had just been crucified 50 days before. Now these people are cut to the quick and they were like, ah, you're right. I was wrong completely. I want to identify with Christ. How much sort of sifting do you have to feel, work through if, to find out if someone's genuine? Why? Because Jesus had just been put to death by the religious rulers. Remember, horribly crucified. Do you think that all of a sudden now the religious leaders are totally fine with a bunch of people identifying as Christians, being baptized, and starting proclaiming and spreading the message that he was resurrected. No, not at all. Basically, they're signing up to say, look, I'm with Christ, I love him, I'm with you all, and I'm willing to even die for it, as we saw all the apostles eventually do. So how much of an extended membership process do you need for that? 
Not very extensive. You could imagine Peter's like, all right, do you, are you trusting in Christ? Have you repented? Look, look, he says in, the, in chapter 2, he says, come out from among this wicked generation. Save yourselves from them. And what? Come join us. And they're like, all right, I'm with you all. And what does it say they ended up doing right in Acts chapter 2? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. A new community has been established. They were added to their number. They give themselves to teaching. The Lord's Supper, after they've been baptized, this is essentially them being identified with God's people formally in a group. Okay, so let's not get lost in the whole idea of because we have a certain process that might be necessary because we don't have persecution. We have people who are raised in Christian homes, and so they might think that they're Christians because they know certain teachings, but they really haven't been converted. They haven't repented of their sins and are following Christ. So we have to sift through all that, all the different teachings that are out there, false teachings. So we need a little bit more time to sift through that. But the essential element is there. What are we trying to communicate by having formal membership? It's this. I, as a baptized believer in the Lord, now put myself under the care of these elders And I invite them and the rest of the church to hold me accountable as a constituent member of this body. Our desire with making what is implicit in the New Testament explicit in our context is to call Christian men and women to a more genuine, authentic, heartfelt, and holistic relationship with other Christians that entails commitment and discipleship and provides us with a more effective means to display the glory of Christ. This is nothing new. God has always had a people whom were very distinct, set apart. Think about Noah and the ark, Abraham and his family, the people of Israel, distinct boundary markers setting apart them as a church community. Entrance now, New Testament, through baptism going public, and now being underneath the care and authority of pastors to be held accountable, very similar to what's taught in Matthew chapter 18. We are to have a right gospel and a right lifestyle. So, implications for this. First off, let me say that if you are a Christian but not currently a member of a church, it is not my intention to embarrass you this morning or, or to point you out or rebuke you or something like that. That's not my intention Uh, Some of you maybe are just transitioning through churches, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard that. So please hear me and give me grace there. But if you are someone who claims to be a Christian and yet see little need for the church, maybe you are loosely connected to the church. I hope that this pricks your ears and you're listening. What does the Bible describe the New Testament community to look like? Is it a loosely association with all sorts of different churches? Or is it one community by which you are to commit, serve, love, persevere in, and pursue? I'm also then preaching to the choir, to you church members. But I want you to be confident that what we are doing here at Emmaus is striving to be faithful to what God has revealed as to how to have a church full of Christians, a regenerate church community. Also, many of you have friends who are part of churches where this isn't being taught. They may be part of some mega church or doing the bounce to bounce type of thing, and they could benefit from you sharing, actually, man, you should really commit to a church where pastors know you, where other people hold you accountable, where you can serve, use your gifts. And then also you might come across the Lone Ranger Christian who's really going it on his own, um, watching internet church, doing that whole thing. That is foreign to the New Testament. Now, this is really important stuff. I hope you've seen it. This is important to you. I guarantee it's important to you if you've gone off the rails spiritually and you've had a brother or sister come for you and say, bro, don't go that route. Come back to us. Or the whole church, maybe it's gotten to that level, and they all said, hey, brother, why are you living this way? Why are you in this relationship? Why are you forsaking Christ? Why are you dragging Christ's name through the mud? No, come back. We want to be restored with you. This stuff becomes really important. You know somebody who's been in a church, their, their spouse ends up leaving them for another man or woman, 
and you're watching, and nobody in the church cares at all. And you're watching that, and you're like, this is so wrong. I feel so bad for that person. This is really important stuff that people know you. You know them. You're held accountable. It's really important to you if you've seen time and time again people leave this church, going to another church for flippant reasons, and you yourself stuck it out and pushed through difficult relationships, and you said, I'm in it with these people. I'm going to work through it. I'm going to forgive. I'm not going to be bitter. And now you are benefiting from 10 years of relationships that don't appear overnight. They're cultivated through thick and thin. And so this becomes important to you as a member. You're like, yes, let me help you understand what New Testament Christianity looks like. Not American. Weak Christianity. And then this is really important to you if you've had a group of pastors who love you, who pray for you, who visit you, who teach God's word no matter what, if it's controversial or not. You know they love you. You want this for other people. These are the, you want them to see that you can have pastors who are going to marry your kids, who are going to do your funeral, who are going to be there through thick and thin. Church membership brings all this about. So what does church membership look at like at, a member, at, at Emmaus? Well, the four C's. Let me give you four more C's. Connect class. We have a uh, confession. We have a constitution and a covenant. Connect class, you learn about the church. You look at the confession of faith and you say, I'm with that. I believe that. You look at the constitution and how we organize ourselves as churches and you say, I'm with that. And then you look at the covenant. That's how we say we're going to live out our life together. And you say, I'm with that. And then you join our church. And it's a blessing. It's good. We're an imperfect church. We're imperfect pastors. But man, it can be so good. Now, I've overshot everything. So I'm going to shut it down. Um, We're going to have to pick it up next week when we look at what are the implications for the fact that churches have pastors who have authority over a group of people, but yet the New Testament tends to teach that this congregation also has authority. How do those two work in tandem? And so we'll spend time on that next week. Thank you for bearing with that lot of information, but I hope and trust that you'll see the importance of it, that we'd be a strong community. May God bless us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love your word. We love the truths found therein. We don't doubt that you and your wisdom have set the church up this way and have given the task of shepherding your church to qualified pastors. And I pray that we be those pastors, that our church would love being a part of Emmaus because they feel safe, taught, secure, and loved. And I pray, Lord, where we've fallen short, that you would grant repentance, that you would forgive us in our failings, and that we'd grow in our pastoral shepherding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's Now go to the Lord's table in considering uh, Lord Jesus and how he makes very explicit through signs and symbols what he did for us in the Lord's Supper.